Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have Scott's fourth lecture from the 2011 Parchman Lecture Series at Truett Seminary. The lecture is on the atonement and the pastor. One of my friends, David Neff, uh, at Christianity Today, when he heard that I had compared atonement theories to golf clubs and that the location of the shot on the course was analogous to which atonement theory was most appropriate, offered a criticism. David said, ah, yes, but every golfer uses a putter on every hole, and the putter is the penal substitutionary theory. Which comment must come from someone who hasn't played golf well. (laughs) Because as I reminded him, sometimes we golfers knock it in the hole before we get on the green. I don't like to lose in golf or in metaphors. And because I realized he was overdoing my metaphor, I decided I needed to get more serious about the claim that penal substitution is the leading and central metaphor of atonement in the Bible. So you will know where I'm headed in this rather longish introduction, which will be followed by a shift in gears and a different path to be taken. I will be suggesting that the single most important reason why evangelicals favor the penal substitutionary theory is because it generates the kind of experience they see as the gateway into the evangelical church, namely a born-again experience. But before I get to that, I want to mention that one of the only attempts to establish penal substitution as the central image of atonement has been offered by Tom Schreiner at Southern Seminary in Louisville in a book called The Nature of the Atonement for Views. Tom's words for how significant penal substitution is, include the anchor and the foundation for all other dimensions of the atonement and the most important metaphor, and finally, it is the heart and soul of God's work in Christ. I agree with Tom that penal substitution is the most important metaphor atonement in evangelicalism. But evangelicalism's pervasive ideas and practices are no necessary indicator of biblical truth. Take, for instance, the sort of music we listen to on Sundays. I'll stop with meddling about our music. I read Tom's piece carefully, and I'm prepared to defend the view that if you already think what Tom thinks, then you will agree with him. But if you don't think what he thinks, you will be left scratching your head. So far as I can see in his article, which I've read three times now, Tom really never tries to prove these words. He asserts over and over the centrality motif, then plays the game of circular logic by concluding he's proven it when he's not done anything of the sort. I appeal to Greg Boyd, whose task it was to respond to Schreiner in that book. Greg Boyd said this, 
While Schreiner repeatedly asserts that the penal substitution motif of atonement is the foundation, heart, and soul of everything else Scripture says about the significance of Jesus' life and death, Schreiner offers us little reason to accept this claim. I will let Boyd's words move us forward because there's more to be said without getting bogged down in Tom's own assertions. To begin with, while the penal substitution theory is not the central metaphor, that does not mean there's no place for that golf club in our bag. Yes, there is evidence for Christ absorbing the punishment of sin, which I take to be death, not the wrath of God, in our place. So for the moment, let's avoid the cantankerous debate about the propriety or morality of penal substitutionary theory. Nor do I want to enter into the realm of historical theology, which Tom avoided, where it can be established that penal substitution, which is not the same as Anselm's satisfaction theory, is not the ruling theory of Christian thinking until Luther and Calvin. Instead, I'd like to poke around a bit in what it means to call a metaphor a central metaphor. This game, of which word is the most important word, reminds me of Matthew's studies in the 1970s and 80s when David Garland and I were young people trying to find our way in this field. And Jack Kingsbury was in a debate with everyone over which title for Jesus was most important in Matthew, and Jack said it was Son of God. Most Matthew scholars thought entering into this debate was like getting excited to watch the Houston Astros. But some people do like to watch the Lastros. That's what I heard yesterday from someone, the Lastros. Some people like to debate titles in Matthew and fight over which metaphor is the most important when it comes to atonement. But do we ever stop to ask if there is such a thing as a ruling metaphor? Because when I was working on Jesus and his death, particularly the conclusions, and just after that, a book called A Community Called Atonement, and because I routinely engaged others in this atonement discussion, I often heard this central metaphor claim. It led me to ponder how we determine which metaphor is central. So I want to make a few suggestions. The first one is this. We can do this by counting atonement passages and showing that at least the majority, or preferably the vast majority, involves or centers on the Godhead punishing the Son or the Son absorbing our punishment. This can't be done because it's inaccurate. So second, we might isolate the single most important text, which is a debate in itself, and conclude that if, it is, if the ruling metaphor is there, it is the most important metaphor of all. But the passage most considered to be the most pregnant atonement passage in the entire New Testament, Romans 3, 21 to 26, is clearly not in favor of penal substitution. Why? Because the Greek word hilasterion most likely means mercy seat and not propitiation. And any idea of wrath has to be imported from other passages and downloaded into this passage to make it important. I'm not saying it is impossible 
But I would say that if this is the most important atonement passage, then penal substitution is not central. Third, we could do this by showing that when Paul uh, begins exploring a different metaphor, say Christus Victor in Colossians chapter 2, 13 to 15, he reverts to penal substitution to make sense of it more completely. In this case, then, we'd see that in Paul's mind, one can't talk about atonement properly until one has run it through penal substitution. But the evidence is simply not there to suggest other metaphors don't make sense until they get tied to penal substitution. Fourth, we could find a New Testament author, or at least a first century or second century theologian, explicitly affirming that penal substitution is the most important idea. And that would be nice, except it doesn't exist. Fifth, we could do what so many, and Tom Schreiner is but one example, do with their atonement theories. They land on one and love it like Gollum's ring, and so explain everything in light of their theory, and then conclude that the explanation proves the point. I'm not questioning the importance of persuasive and compelling logic, but when it comes to making the claim that penal substitution is the central metaphor, it will take more to convince us than simply asserting it. I give but one example. Schreiner claims Mark 10.45's famous ransom for many expression is both substitutionary and penal. Here are his words. The preposition on T, for, often denotes in place of, and he gives references. And it most naturally, I never trust people's language when it says most naturally, especially when they want a conclusion. It most naturally has that meaning here. Christ in his death suffered in the place of others. Furthermore, the text teaches penal substitution since Christ's death is described as a ransom, lutron. The term ransom, he says, indicates that Christ, by his death, paid the price necessary to liberate sinners from the dominion of sin. He paid the price we owed so that we might go free. Yes, of course, he makes sense of Mark 10.45 as a penal substitution text, but I contend he does so because he colonizes it into his own theory. Gollum's ring is always attractive. The word anti might mean substitutionary, but logically, Jesus doesn't become a ransom instead of us because, after all, we are not ransoms in the text. We are prisoners, not ransoms. So he doesn't logically become a ransom instead of us. He becomes a ransom so we don't have to be prisoners. There's a difference, I would argue. So on purely logical grounds, the word anti more likely means for us or for our benefit. He became a ransom in order to liberate us from imprisonment. Furthermore, Tom claims that we are slaves because of our sin. That's surely true, but it has nothing to do with this text. The word ransom evokes the language of slavery and captivity 
And therefore, the language game is about our victimhood at the hands of the enemy. All of this has been discussed in my books, and you can look up the discussion there. My point is not that I'm right. My point is to illustrate the kind of colonizing logic at work at times when people want to argue that a given metaphor is central or the heart and soul. Greg Boyd and Joel Green, in their responses, both contend that Mark 10.45 is not about penal substitution, but about ransom theory. We need to push on, so I'll sum this up by saying that the only way that I see we can make penal substitution central is by assuming it and then explaining everything in light of our assumptions. In short, we can do this by colonizing the kaleidoscope of metaphors, or we can do this by playing golf with one club. And I've played with a guy who played with one club, and I crushed his game, and it, it annoyed me that anyone would play with a club that you could adjust. I think it's defiling of the sacredness of what golf is about, but I won't go any further on that. I want to suggest now that there is a reason why we do this. Tom belongs in what I am calling the neo-Puritan side of the evangelical movement. That side of the evangelical movement focuses the gospel on double imputation and justification by faith, as well as on satisfaction of God's wrath in the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ, and therefore at the heart of that group is penal substitution as the meta-narrative of what gives the Bible clarity. I don't think any of this is an exaggeration, but I do now want to make a little bit more of a speculative suggestion. The Neo-Puritans believe the most genuine authentic experience of the gospel and personal salvation is to comprehend in a profoundly humiliating encounter with the, holy utter, the utter holiness of God that a person is a wretched and vile sinner and therefore also knows both that he or she deserves nothing but wrath and hell but is experienced by the sheer grace of God an elective salvation so that he or she has been welcomed into the arms of the Father through the Son's propitiatory and reconciling work. Their church services are designed to plunge the sinner into the vileness of sinfulness in order to be lifted by God's work in Christ into the glories of sheer grace of salvation. My contention is if this is right, penal substitution is required by the gospel, the Neo-Puritan believes, and by the central experience, the Neo-Puritan believes alone is genuine. To question this is to question everything. I know this from experience. Some years back, as a college student, I became enamored through a variety of contexts, not the least of which was that I lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I came into contact with Puritans. I read John Brown's commentary on Hebrews, Thomas Manton's commentary on James, and then I discovered John Owen, 
And I bought some volumes, and I began to read them, and never finished. They're endless. I had friends who were Reformed Baptists, and I became intoxicated with my theology and my election and with sheer grace. I had prayer experiences of profound doubt and the sensation of being utterly sinful. And several times I was convinced that I was not one of the elect, but that it would glorify God if I were to be sent to hell, because glorifying God was the essence of what a vile sinner was called to do. I was approved by others for such thoughts and such experiences and such profound grasp of the essence of the gospel. I have since moved on to greener pastures among the Anabaptists and into more Arminian thinking, and I'm no longer approved except by God. What I'm getting at is that while there is exegesis and theologizing at work and each shapes what we believe, we need to be postmodern enough to admit that we favor the atonement metaphor that props up our theology the best. My contention is that evangelicalism as a whole, and not just the Neo-Puritans, favor penal substitution because it generates the experience that evangelicals believe opened the door to God's grace. My contention in this longish introduction, then, is that this is an unnecessary narrowing of atonement And in the time that remains, I want to explore atonement in a larger missional and ecclesial sense. I want to suggest that the atonement should not be reduced to one metaphor or to a mechanism. I want to suggest that revisiting gospel, as we did yesterday, will mean that we need to revisit what atonement means. And I am suggesting that if the gospel is about declaring the saving story about King Jesus then atonement is about entering into that saving story by entering into Christ. We talk too much about getting Christ into our hearts and not enough, as Paul himself does, about getting in Christ. Genuine gospeling leads not so much to accepting Jesus into us, but entering into Jesus and into the story that makes sense of who he is and what he has done for us. Three facts, once clear in our mind, revolutionized a segment of Judaism to become what we now call Christianity, and it can revolutionize how we gospel and how we understand atonement. In this second part of the paper, I want to dabble in yet another introduction, and I'm starting to sound like a German theologian now by being all prolegomena. Long ago, in the generation before this one, Judaism was considered a missionary religion. In fact, first century Christianity, or century of Judaism, was considered the missionary age of Judaism par excellence. But this conclusion has has been all but disproven to the point that now the consensus is that Judaism at the time of Jesus, Peter, and Paul was not a missionary religion in the way Christianity became a missionary religion. The fact is that Judaism was not a missionary religion and Christianity became one. And Peter in Acts 10 through 11 and Paul in his Aegean mission are the originators of evangelizing the Roman Empire and the world. What concerns us is not the specific historical conclusions, 
but missionary activity itself. And that begins with Jesus. There are two recorded notable missions by Jesus. He sent out the twelve, now recorded in Mark 6 and parallels, and then he sent out the 70, or the 72, and recorded in Luke 10. The Great Commission involves ascending, and John's famous line, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, uh, is also a missionary statement. There was a conviction to go, and a set of beliefs that compelled the early Christians to go out and tell others the gospel. Now for a second fact. There is a word of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew that staggers me every time I read it and stumble across it for preparation in classes. In preparing the twelve for their mission to fellow Jews, Jesus said this, Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. In addition to this, is Mother Teresa's gospel in Matthew 25, 40. The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. While I'm not convinced this last text has to do with visiting orphans in Zimbabwe who have never heard the gospel, but is instead about Jesus' missionaries, The general point can now be drawn, our second fact. Jesus believed his own presence was extended in his followers, wherever they were and wherever they were doing kingdom ministries. There's nothing quite like this in Judaism, though there is the famous rabbinic line that the one sent is as the one who sent him a comment about ambassadors in Mishnah Barakot 5.5. This leads me to a third fact. Judaism at the time of Jesus was marked by a common theological idea of the ancient Near East. God was located in a shrine. For Judaism, while there are clear exceptions to the belief that God can be contained in a dwelling, believe that Yahweh dwelt in the temple above the old city of David. Whether you buy into Tom Wright's very suggestive idea that Jesus' triumphal entry was in fact that Zacharian return of the king to the temple or not, there can be very little disagreement that Jesus and the earliest followers of Jesus had some very unusual ideas about the temple and the presence of God. St. Stephen, with his feet to the fire, and emboldened beyond measure to recapture Israel's history in a gospelish reading of the Bible, unlike no other, slips in near the end of his sermon and in the climactic conclusion to his sketch of history, these words. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. Of course, there were other critics of the temple, not the least of whom, is the community that took up residence in that hot and dusty Qumran awaiting the apocalyptic act of God to destroy the wicked priest in Jerusalem. What the Essenes, though, failed at, their next-door neighbor achieved. His name was Yohanan, or John. And instead of offering purification in a mikvah or in the temple, John said we could begin life all over again in the Jordan River in baptism. 
The trail of blood goes all the way back to John the Baptist. And Jesus said something like this in the second chapter of John. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus was notoriously critical of the temple and the temple establishment, predicted its destruction within a generation, and then in a breathtaking evening that had the chutzpah to reveal that his body and his blood found now in the Passover's bread and wine would be the means of atonement. This has to be taken as rebellion against the temple and revolution in the inner courts of God's dwelling. Paul taught a revolutionary and similar understanding of the temple, and it is only because we're not first century Jews that we fail to hear how wild and crazy his ideas were. I quote just one text. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Paul thought the followers of Jesus, not unlike what Jesus said about his missionaries, were the presence of God, the temple itself, on earth, wherever they were, and whenever they carried on kingdom work. My, my, these are massive claims if you're a first century Jew. I'll skip the rest of what the New Testament says about temple. Our goal is to talk about atonement and the church and pastoral ministry. And I wanted these three facts. The sudden development of missionary activity, the presence of God among God's people, and the temple revolution to be on the table in order to say something fresh beyond what I've said in a community called atonement. Let's draw these three facts together into a double thesis. First, the missionary activity, the presence of Christ among his followers, and the temple revolution democratized the mediation of God's redemption in the world. Democratized mediation. We are all involved. We are all involved at all times. Second, Again, taking the larger sense of atonement, atonement is now mediated by ordinary people in the form of a community through gospeling, baptism and Eucharist, and spirit-shaped fellowship. Our theme verses will be 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 20. We need to read them to see that the missionary calling, the presence of Christ, and the dispersion of the temple are all at work in the one central calling we each have, reconciliation. And that term is the heart of atonement theory. And I don't mean the central metaphor. Here are the verses. If anyone is in Christ, new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. 
we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The intent, now a few comments, the intent of atonement or God's redemptive design is new creation. The work of atonement is accomplished by God the Father. And the emergent critics of the so-called divine child abuse theory need to read texts like this more carefully. The Father, it is the Father who reconciled us to himself through Christ. The Father is not angry at us, and it is not Christ who steps in to take the hit from the Father, but it is entirely the work of Father, Son, and Spirit. The goal of God's atoning, reconciling work is to reconcile the world to himself in Christ. The manner of God's atoning work is not to count our sins against us, which shows a commercial and perhaps legal metaphor is at work inside the relational idea of reconciliation. But there is no indication of penal substitution here. The modus operandi of God is to assign this task to us. It is to us that the message of reconciliation, this logontes kalages, has been given. Paul is committed as Paul is as committed to Jesus to how significant Paul is as committed as Jesus to how significant you and I are. We are not only ambassadors, it is though as though God were making his appeal through us, Paul says. My thesis then is that instead of everyone coming to Zion to see God and experience God's presence on the Temple Mount, God changed in midstream by dispensing his presence into his people and sent his people out as followers of Jesus to a global mission of reconciliation. This atoning work then is assigned to us as we call people to Jesus Christ. Boiled into stock broth, we are a community called atonement or a community called reconciliation. How do we do this? I suggest it begins first through gospeling. Whether we go back to Jesus' ascending out of the 12 and the 70, or to the Great Commission, or to the presence of Christ and his followers, or to the temple's completion in the very presence of God and the Lamb, where no temple will even be needed, the fixation of these texts is on Jesus Christ. This Christological driver shapes the story of Israel, and it completes the story of Israel so that the gospel itself is declaration about Jesus Christ as the center of God's mission in this world. Gospeling is how the church mediates atoning work of God, which means one more time, we tell people about Jesus by preaching the gospels as the gospel, We teach God's people the core elements of the gospel through the lens of the apostolic gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, and we learn how to gospel by watching the apostles' gospel in the book of Acts. When will we ever learn as churches and as pastor teachers that all we have to offer, all we have to tell people about, and all we have to show people is Jesus. We like our music, 
and our drama groups. We are now more and more driven to act justly in social ways by engagement with the poor and despised, and we hope in doing this that our little lights will shine. We do everything we can to make the gospel relevant by toning down offenses and oddities about our first century Jewish message and Messiah. We have shaped and reshaped our churches according to business and entertainment models, so we are attractional, and we work hard to being normal and honest and authentic. We even study business strategies and use consumer satisfaction surveys to become more managerial and sensitive, all the while thinking these are the tricks of the trade. What made the movie Chocolat with Juliette Binoche so incredibly evocative was that the chocolate itself was more healing than the church. And that might be because the church has for too long lost track of what it is designed to do, mediate Jesus by telling people about Jesus. I'll quit meddling. I grew up Baptist, and the irony of my Baptist heritage is that we believe baptism didn't do us any good. But we were stuck with the name. Our ancestors chose to believe that baptism upon profession of faith was the only real biblical baptism. I still believe that. The good thing about the irony is that we didn't live down to our theology, but well above it. That is, we may have claimed baptism didn't save and that it was purely symbolic, but it was the distinguishing mark of the true believer, and that meant that baptism really was genuinely important. And as a seminary student, I read through Beasley Murray's brilliant book on baptism, and at that time I concluded there was no such thing as an unbaptized believer in the first century, and that the first century followers of Jesus were driven by social and cultural and religious instincts to get washed as a way of entering into the Christian faith. As the Qumran folks washed themselves in a purifying manner every day, and as first-century Jews dipped into a mikvah, or as at Capernaum, into a lake or a running stream, so the earliest followers of Jesus simply had to get wet. Paul nails the theology of baptism on the head in Romans 6, and I only want to quote verses 3 or 4. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him, through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. What Paul tells us here is that baptism embodies the story of Jesus and that our baptism is an entrance into the story of Jesus. Baptism, I'm suggesting, is a quintessential gospeling event. Too many preachers spend too much time explaining baptism and not enough time doing baptism. Explaining it only goes so far. When it is done, we see baptism embodied in its reality and we see the gospel at work. The person enters into the water, gets washed, and rises to the surface again, and that is the gospel. We enter into the death of Jesus that forgives our sin and we enter into the resurrection of Jesus 
as that which justifies us and raises us to life to be the new creation. Eucharist too. Maybe you don't call it Eucharist. I'm in the north. We can get by with this. Many things deserve to be said, and we have time for none of them. I begin with this because it crystallizes it all for me. Why did Jesus choose to die on Passover and not Yom Kippur? Why Passover and not the Day of Atonement? What are the differences between Passover and Yom Kippur? To begin with, the former is about Israel's historic story of deliverance from slavery, being ransomed, about being protected by the blood of the lamb smeared on the door, and about liberation from Egypt so Israel could return to the Haaretz and be God's people where God wanted God's people. Yom Kippur, on the other hand, is primarily about fasting and forgiveness. Jesus' Last Supper, in the place where Jesus officially replaced the temple with himself, is a Passover event because Jesus wants us to ingest the blood as Israel smeared the blood. He wants us to eat the bread as Israel ate the bread and the lamb and the bitter herbs. He wants us to know that his blood protects from God's judgment, and he wants us to know that his body is our new life. He wants us to know most completely that his blood and his body bring true liberation, establishing a new covenant so that we can be both forgiven and free. Whenever we eat this bread and drink this blood, Paul told us, we gospel the Lord's death until he comes. Very slowly now. Eucharist is one of the church's primary instruments for gospeling. Why? Because like baptism, the gospel is shown and embodied in a way that words cannot interpret. We see the death and we see the resurrection. We ingest as a way of partaking and participating in who Jesus is. I don't know your custom, but you can't do the Lord's Supper too often, and I don't care what others have told you. In my Baptist church as a kid, we did communion four times a year, and it was always tacked on to an endlessly long sermon. Often it was rushed, and we rushed because the sermon was too long, and the time was getting late, or it was getting hot, or lunch was going to burn, or in our case, a roast was going to dry out, which it would have anyway. We once were at a church where you could take the Lord's Supper at a little stand on your way out of the service. Yikes almighty, I thought to myself. Drive away Eucharist. There is no reason to rush the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is our gospel. There is no reason to tack it onto a sermon, but there are good reasons to let the Eucharist be the sermon. I'm not Orthodox or Catholic, but the Lord's Supper is a drama, and watching it as stage drama in which we get to participate is one of the best ways to gospel in our world today. In the Eucharist, you and I become the atoning presence of God's work in this world. My third and last point is uh, through spirit 
spirit-shaped fellowship. Back again to being sent on a mission to the presence of Christ among us and of the democratizing of God's temple presence in Christ and his people. We would not be the first to observe that the physical temple that sat so high on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which always meant the presence of God, is taken up in new shape and form in apostolic theology. This is both, in in fact, the temple in some ways becomes the Holy Spirit's presence in you and me. This is both individual and corporate. Our bodies are the housing of the Spirit. Paul says, and I quote again, Do you know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Honor God with your bodies. Each of us as a dwelling place of the Spirit, because the Spirit dwells in us. This is also corporate, as Paul would fully expound six chapters later in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Spirit is given to make a vast collection of all sorts of people to work together as a body. Then the Spirit's work is shaped entirely by love, as Paul says in chapter 13, and again as he says in chapter 14, all these gifts are given for the strengthening of the church. Another word for this is koinonia. I want to probe further now. In our country, the younger generation is becoming obsessed with social justice And this is leading one student of mine after another into local and state and federal government opportunities. It is leading them to think of politics and voting in the right candidates. To cut this description short, what it's doing is leading young Christians out of the church and into the public sector to do what they call kingdom work. I want to raise a red flag here. There is no such thing as kingdom work outside the church. I don't mean the building. For the kingdom is about King Jesus and King Jesus' people and King Jesus' ethics for King Jesus' people. Social justice outside the church is not biblical justice or kingdom work. It's social work. And fine, that's a good thing. But let's not call this kingdom. Genuine kingdom work is koinonia work. In other words, I plead with my students and you today to reconsider kingdom work and to work hard at making the church a beachhead of justice and peace and love in your community, to supply the poor in your church with what they need, to work at alleviating the needs of those who are in your church, and to let that kind of church and kingdom and justice work spill over into the walls of your community so that the people will see the church as the true politic of God in this world where the kingdom vision can be established. True justice is biblical justice, of being declared right and growing in being made right, as we embody the reconciling koinonia that Jesus came to embody. True justice is found in the Magnificat and in Acts 2 and in Acts 4. It is found in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. True justice is found in Revelation 20 through 22, not in the Democrats or the Republicans. True justice is living under the true king. Now back to missionary sending, the presence of Christ among us, and the dispersion of the temple. If our local church begins to see itself as sent by Christ, as the presence of Christ and as the new temple, 
It will seek to sanctify the place. It will seek justice, peace, and love. If we live like this, we will be a church called Atonement, even right here in Waco, Texas.